it was late spring, sitting out in the backyard, my friend uh, Eric Geyer, our daughters, about six years old, classmates, we're drinking iced tea, our wives are inside the house, we're responsible for watching our daughters, but we weren't really paying close attention, we were engaged in conversation, and my wife leans out from the house back door and says, how are the girls? And immediately, Eric and I started looking around. We had not been noticing where they are, and we, just back of Eric's house, there's a rail fence. On the other side of the rail fence, there's a 100-acre uh, meadow. And on the end of the meadow is a bunch of black oak trees along a creek. And when she said, how are the girls, we both uh, looked around, and then we, our eyes found the girls. They were in the, the field on top of horses, riding towards the creek. <laughs> now, Eric doesn't have horses, and we don't have horses, and as far as we know, our girls don't know how to ride, so this was alarming. I immediately turned back to my wife and said, they're fine, go back inside. <laughs> and then Eric and I took off running, <clears throat> awkwardly hopping the fence, running across the field, and and as we got closer and closer, uh, we noticed that in the shadow of the oak trees, there was a woman, cowboy hat and, you know, the big brass buckle and um, boots, and there was a truck and a horse trailer there. And she saw us and saw the alarm and panic, and she started calling across, it's okay, it's okay, they're all right. And she had, uh, somebody had mowed through the grass a little circled, um, elliptical kind of pathway and the horses were following this pathway and, and this woman was talking to our daughters and talking to the horses and they were pleased as punch to be on these horses riding in the circle. Well, I made it my way to, the, uh, to this woman and said, hey, hey, what's happening in here? And she said, well, I'm a horse therapist and uh, not only are your daughters enjoying this ride, this is good for the horses too. And I said, well, what do you mean a horse therapist? She said, well, you know, people get horses and they've never had a horse, or they can't care for them, or they fall on hard times, and these horses, these animals, sometimes get abused. She said sometimes they get a colt, brand new, and they don't have an outside fenced area, so they'll put it in a barn, or they'll even put it in a garage, and that animal will stay there, sometimes for years, sometimes never brought out. There'll be something that happens in the family, or they'll fall on hard times, and that horse will live in the dark just enough oats to survive and tepid water and it'll live there for years then a neighbor will call me and say you need to go rescue this horse and I'll go up there and I'll pull up the trailer and I'll go into the barn and the horse will resist and I have to bring two or three people and we force this animal into the trailer and then I bring it down here into the field where I camp and I said well, what happens when you bring it here it says well it doesn't recognize anything comes into the field, it doesn't even know that this creek is water. And so it whines and cries out, thirsty. And it, I bring it, drag it to the water and it won't drink because it, it doesn't have the smell of tin or must or whatever it was where it was stuck. And it doesn't know the grass is food. And so it starts starving and it's calling out and calling out and crying in pain until eventually, desperate enough, it'll put its 
muzzle down into that water and drink and realize this is water. And then eventually, usually two or three days, it'll grab a tuft of grass and eat it and recognize this is food. And she said, and that's the moment that gives me the greatest joy and fuels this work. I said, why? She goes, because when it recognizes that it's in a field of food with fresh water, it takes off running. And it runs around and around this meadow, jumping and running when it recognizes I am surrounded by life. We know this story a little bit. We know what it's like to be trapped, isolated, alone, trapped within our anxiety, our depression, that sense of separation from others, our minds playing over the same scenes, the same stories, the same longings, suffering there in the dark, wanting some way out but not knowing how, wanting to be changed but not knowing how to do that, trying to manage it in some way. Maybe if I read these self-help books, maybe if I hear this lecture, Maybe if I try Pilates, whatever that is, I'll somehow manage to rid myself of the suffering. And they say when we're suffering, we do one of three things. The first thing is we double down on everything we've always done. We double down on our personality. If we're a workaholic, we work more if we're suffering. If we're someone who sort of escapes and withdraws from life, we withdraw more. We try to just double down and hoping that something different will happen. But of course, when you do what you've always done, you get what you always get, and the suffering doesn't leave. The second thing we do is we try to escape. We numb out. We watch more Netflix. We eat more ice cream. We escape from the problem until the suffering gets so great that we come to the third thing, and that is we search for relief, something to make this stop. This is this suffering that we're in as human beings. And it's as if when we think of the presence of Jesus in the world, it's like, for many of us, it's like we all are living in this society in a prison. And every once in a while, there in the dark of the barn or there in, in, in the rhythms and um, walls and bars of our own life and the life we've created, every once in a while in the prison system, Jesus appears and says, let's get out of here. Let's go. I got, the, I got the trailer right outside. Let's get out of here. And we say, that sounds wonderful. But you know, here in the prison, this is Thursday, and they always have pot roast. So could we wait till this afternoon? And in fact, actually, this weekend, we're doing, a, you would love this, Jesus, we're doing a Bible study on the different forms of freedom in the Gospels, and I'm teaching one of the lessons. And so... We could wait till past Friday. Uh, in fact, you'd enjoy the church service we do here in the prison. It's really lovely. Real passion, right? Jesus says, no, let's get out of here. Let's break down the walls. Let me lead you into another form of life. And then every once in a while, we hear something that's really terrifying. Jesus says to us, you know this prison that you've based your life on with your who's in and who's out and rhythms and prison chapel and all that it doesn't even exist it's not even real there is no prison you're free and so let's walk and it's terrifying 
when you hear the whisper of freedom from Jesus. It's terrifying when you hear God calling you out into that verdant meadow. Because I've based my whole life on the prison system. My whole identity is based on the prison system. I know where the lines are. I know how to function in this personality. And I would rather stay in the dark and drink this water because it's safe and I know it and I can control it. I'd rather eat these oats. And if you come and try to get me out of this life I'm in, you're going to have to drag me. What we learn in the Christian faith is that our efforts, our perfection projects, the way we're trying to get ourselves free don't work. Our efforts do not work. And that the only move that we can make is surrender. Trust. Faith. Allowing ourselves to say, I don't know what to do. I'm here in the dark. I don't know what to do. And then turn our ear and listen. And listen to that voice of freedom and love. And trust that even through the death and the suffering and the loss of all that we have known, we are being born into, through the one who has created the world, we are being born into new life, though it feels like death. I just want to end with this image. Um, we had a graduation party in our neighborhood. It was for a family next door, and there were a lot of neighbors gathered, and a woman came in, and, and, and her, her shoulders were kind of crouched, and she kind of stood next to me, and I could tell she didn't want to be there. And she said, you know, all my suffering is around graduations. And, and she told me this story, and she's given me permission to tell this story. She said, when I was little, uh, I had successful parents, upper middle class, home, um, but both of my parents were addicted to, to drugs, to painkillers, and to alcohol. And inside our house, the curtains were always drawn, didn't have much furniture, we hardly ever had enough food in the house, and it was miserable, and I was their only child. And they were so self-absorbed in their own addiction and suffering that they hardly paid attention to me. And if you look at my pictures, my school pictures as I was growing up, you can tell I'm uncared for. My, my hair is unkempt, the clothes are too small. And so I kind of fell into myself. I was isolated, I was alone, I didn't have many friends. But in sixth grade, I noticed something. I was smart. I, I knew what the teacher was doing. I, I liked reading. I, I, I understood math. I, I could do this. And I started just pouring myself, right? into school and learning. And I did well, got into high school, uh, did really well, didn't have any friends, didn't belong in any clubs, still didn't know anyone, was still very much in pain, but I took all the advanced classes and when high school graduation came, I was so proud because they had this ritual where those who had the highest GPA got to wear a gold cord. And I would be seen by the other classmates and, and by our community I would be honored as someone who had this high grade point average. I went to the graduation, sat up on a stage in the auditorium, and all of a sudden the principal made this terrible announcement. The principal said, we've got a lot of students, we've got a long program, so when we announce names and we start bringing the diplomas up, I want to ask everyone to not to applaud. Just allow us to call all the names, get all the diplomas, and then we'll all stand and congratulate the class together. Don't make any noise until everyone has received their diploma. She said the reason this was a terrible instruction is that no one obeyed it. So every time a name was called, 
the parents would yell or a few friends would yell or even other students would yell so that every single name had a few cries and a few yells of congratulations and support. And I got this sick feeling because I knew when my name was called, it would be silent. So I started to search the crowd looking for my parents. My mom was so in her own world, she didn't even come to my graduation, but my father, drunk, stood at the back of the room with a drinking buddy, and they were kind of standing back there. And I just, the whole ceremony, just trying to telepathically, please do something, make some kind of noise. But instead, when my name was called, I walked across that stage in silence, just the sound of my footsteps, and it was so shaming that when I left the auditorium, I threw away my gold cord, my robe, my diploma, and I walked home crying. I went to college, I did well, I skipped my college graduation, I went to law school, I did well, but still friendless. I walked into the graduation ceremony and panicked. That memory came back to me of that shame. I found a group of young adults, I walked up to them and said, hey, can I show you guys my name in this program? Would you all cheer when they call? my name, and I even gave them, this high school because I gave them five dollars each, like, okay. You know, imagine that, you're, you're a grown woman getting a law degree, and you're begging people to cheer for you. I got on the stage, and I could not believe it, the second time in my life, the dean made the same announcement. No cheering, no applause. My name was called, and for the second time in my life, I walked across the stage in silence. And that's when I began to drink. I lost 10 years. I finally was living in a car in San Francisco, going to women's shelters. And a person brought me to an AA meeting and I slowly worked myself out of that. And three years ago, she said, I got married. And my husband threw my, uh, uh, my very first birthday party when I turned 37. First party I've ever had, never had a birthday party. And he made it like a kid's party. We had hats and streamers and pen the tail on the donkey and a children's cake because my parents had never done this for me. And people from AA and people from my new job and all these folks came in. And then at the end of the party, he had us all sit around the television and he put in this DVD and he had interviewed different people about me and he gave testimonies about how wonderful I was. And it was this really sweet kind of video. And then it came to the end and up on the screen came my law school graduation. And it was the video clip right before they called my name. And I see this on the screen, I'm in shock, and I hear my name called, and I see myself on the screen walk across the stage, except this time, I hear these voices cheering. He said, my husband is a sound engineer, and he had gone into an auditorium and he had recorded himself applauding in different parts of the auditorium. Yay! Way to go, Teresa! Teresa, fantastic! You know, just different voices. And then he had looped it all together so that this time, when I went across that stage, there was a hundred voices cheering and calling my name. She said it was one of those experiences, before I knew what I was doing, I stood up and I just screamed, turn that off, turn it off! I said, that's not how it happened. And it was awkward and uncomfortable, and I just went into the bedroom, and I just started crying. Just all the shame, all the hurt, all that effort to make something of myself, 
just feeling it all over me. Everybody left. My husband came in to apologize. I said, I can't believe you showed that. That, that was the moment that everything fall apart. And you just put that up on a screen in front of people? And I slept alone that night just in that shame. And the next morning, I got up early, and there was my husband on the couch. I went and got birthday cake because I hadn't had any night before. And I went to the television, and I put that DVD in. And I fast-forwarded it until I got to that moment of the graduation. And I just tried to watch myself, trying so hard to prove my worth. This young woman working so hard to claim some kind of dignity. And I saw her get up and walk across that stage when her name was called. And I listened, and this time I heard my husband and a hundred voices telling me, I love you, I love you, I love you, you have worth, you have dignity, I see you, I love you, and you can be free. And I let it play, and when it ended, my husband started to apologize, and I said, you know what? I like it. Let's leave it as it is. This is the work. This is the work of Lent, to slow down, to quiet down, to give up all of the perfection projects, all the programs for happiness, to slow down and wait until the one who created us into being calls our name and allow ourselves to follow and to receive it until we hear the one who says, you are my beloved, and we listen and allow all that we've built to fall apart so that we might run free in fields of green. Amen.